0: Hey guys, great news. Thanks to our partner Beta, this week we're giving away Withings Body Plus Wi-Fi Smart Scales. This scale has high accuracy and full body composition. Body Plus includes coaches, rewards, and it automatically sends all of your data to the free Health Mate app. With tools at hand such as trend screens and nutrition tracking, the Withings Body Plus Wi-Fi Smart Scale is the perfect way for users to track and achieve their weight loss goals. Enter this week's giveaway at www.mission.org giveaway for a chance to win a free Withings Body Plus Wi-Fi Smart Scale. Or if you want to purchase, go directly to www.withings.com and enter Mission Daily 20 to get 20% off the Withings Body Plus Smart Scale. This code is only valid on withings.com or visit your nearby beta store. Welcome to Mission Daily. On today's episode, Chad sits down with Kevin Kelly, founding executive editor of Wired Magazine. Kevin co-founded Wired Magazine in 1993 and served as its executive editor for its first 7 years of existence. Kevin is a New York Times and Wall Street Journal best-selling author for his most recent book, The Inevitable: Understanding the 12 technological forces that will shape our future. He has also written a number of other books that are must-reads, including What Technology Wants and New Rules for the New Economy. On this episode, Chad and Kevin discuss the future of technological innovation, what we can expect to see, such as driverless cars, and when they will arrive.
1: So you think it's um, a bright future for the future of
2: individual data? I do. I do. I am more optimistic um, than I have ever been. I think that we're headed towards a big, long boom of fantastic progress. And that's not just for us who are privileged to be in Silicon Valley, but I think even for the whole world, that that in general, these technologies will be a net positive, And the issues that are real and the problems that are real, that will be um, speak about are correctable. They are they are not inherently uh, something that's going to stop this. My image of a kind of progress is like a car barreling down the road. You have to have brakes in order to be able to steer. And the faster it goes, the more important it is to have brakes. And so it is necessary to kind of look at the things that aren't working and try to fix them. But the more important Part of the car is the engine, which is propelling it forward. And and that's sort of what the general progress in technology is. And especially with self-driving cars, I think
1: it's a great opportunity to start talking about what choices do we trust machines with? And uh, the answer should be, according to the statistics, more than what we're allowing them to make right now. What would you say to that?
2: The analogy I use is that these things that we're making, these AIs and robots that will make decisions for us or make decisions on their own is a little bit like um mind children they're like our children and so it's very scary when children grow up because they're going to be deciding things they have great power and in order to do that you have to kind of convey or transmit values right and that's sort of part of what we're we're talking about but you know if it was if we lived in a world a science fiction alternative world where there was, you know, 7 billion people, but we never had children. Somehow we asexually cloned. Mm-hmm. And then someone came along with the idea of introducing children. We would totally reject it as an insane idea. What? You're going to have these little infants and they're going to grow up to have their own decision-making power. And they're going to, you know, and, and they Could can run so things and drive cars. is so scary. It's, yeah. It's like, no way. Yeah. That's a really bad idea. And so we're kind of like, this is, The first time on the planet we're going to have these mind children, and it is very scary, but we have kind of an existence proof that it's possible to transmit values and guidance. And the thing about AI and all these things that we're talking about is that we're kind of overestimating the speed at which they're coming. Yes, technological speed is fast and it is getting faster, but the complexity of what it takes to have like a self-driving car with no steering wheel is so high that it's not going to happen this year. It's not going to happen five years. It's not going to happen even in 10 years. It's going to be a long time coming. And we uh, will be having this conversation during that whole time. And we have enough time to actually try and make these systems work so you think
1: that level five is a couple decades away yes yeah, many decades away. level five is essentially saying this
2: is artificial general intelligence correct or no i don't this, believe in that i okay, don't think there's gotcha, such a thing gotcha i would say level five is a self driving car that has no steering wheel meaning that it's completely navigating on its own anywhere on the planet that roads can go sure and you know driving through boston In the back alleys of boston or you know going to a ranch in wyoming so um that would be level five for me and that kind of um or at night during a rainstorm right you know that kind of smartness uh, is is just going to take a long time to get there do you think because in in this case because we have uh no tolerance for mistakes in other words it's like it's not can't be just like ninety nine point five percent good or ninety nine point right. nine. It has to be six better nines. than the perfect human, almost exactly. <laughs> it has to be six nines sure. before we're going to be comfortable riding in that um, vehicle. And do you think we're going to get there more quickly
1: if we focus on lidar or machine vision, or is it both and something else? Well, actually,
2: it's both and and it's even more. Just as when we moved from horse world to say the present day. Roads. It wasn't just that we took cars and put them on horse trails. We built this huge infrastructure: ramps, on ramps, uh, divided highways. a new culture, new <laughs> pave. Yes, the exit stops. The entire, the entire infrastructure, and all the gasoline and transport to support this new thing. The self-driving cars are going to require an equal transformation of the infrastructure. So it's just, you can't just put a steering wheelless car on a million of them or millions of them or tens of millions on of dumb them roads. on the road, right on dumb roads. So we're going to have to actually upgrade this infrastructure to accommodate and prepare for and to assist these cars. And so you need the smart environment as well as the smart car. And so... And so that's a huge build-out, and, and that's what's necessary. It's not just LIDAR on a card and AI. It's going to be a, a level it's, of unprecedented it's infrastructure huge infrastructure where we have guidance on the side, we have smart traffic lights, we have so many other things that are going to be part of that system. So those massive investments in infrastructure
1: are typically the province of nation states and sovereign wealth funds. These are the type of people that invest there. Do you see the U.S. being willing or open to – starting to invest in
2: infrastructure again or is that not going to happen here that's a hard thing to predict uh you know who would predict that trump would have won so i can't say whether it's going to happen but i would certainly think that it should happen and i would say that there's very few things that are as good as investment as infrastructure except for one thing which is a better investment which is in basic science and technology research i i don't know whether the us is going to it's really hard to say But um, I mean, I personally hope they do. exactly. I hope they do. And it would make the most sense. And by the way, other countries like China are doing that. And so maybe we'll be shamed into doing it. it. It is by far the best thing we could do. Do you think we get there by kind of advertising what's going
1: on in these other countries like China? Do we catalyze some FOMO amongst policymakers and folks
2: like that? Or what's maybe step one to getting there or creating that future? Because I'm an American, you know, I think like American. And I have a certain amount of pride in America, but at the same time, I spend an awful lot of my life outside of America and in places like China. And, and so I'm much more a globalist at heart than most Americans. And so there is kind of races between countries, but I, I, I think that's actually, I think nationalism is a disease mm. that we should try to eliminate and, um, if we can understand that, that we would all do better, the better that everybody else does. I, I think there is, there is, um, you know, some forms of competition can be good and it helps innovation. So, and then that's going to be natural. Um, but the competition we, is generally pretty brutal, right? It's, it right, doesn't but, have to be the, but but doesn't, the we, we wanted, we wanted to, to, to take it in measure. We wanted to do, we want to have competition in the right places sure. and, we all want to understand that the, even the competition is really for the benefit of everybody, which is what we have this view in terms of the market is, is that your own self-interest can actually benefit everybody else. And so some of that showing off and um, pointing to other places that like succeed can, can be beneficial. And there should be you know ways to run multiple different experiments. So sure. to speak, political experiments, you try it this way, we'll try it this way. We'll see who's better. But I think, what I would argue is that well then let's have an evidence based policy let's let's look at the data and try and um, decide what to do based on what actually happened and um, that's often not done um, but but I think more of that would be better we could look at um, how other countries are, are funding their infrastructure and you know what happens so you know the the one the, the there is one Blank spot or blind spot in American kind of a view, which is that, um, and this, this is sort of a recent thing, which is this kind of idea that the the government and the way it does things is like a total negative drain on everything, and it's completely wrong. Most of the innovation in technology, things like your iPhone to, you know, Uber are based on um, research that was originally done by, funded by the, the U.S. government. Right. And from GPS to, you know, transistors, all kinds of things. And even today, um, this is still happening where some real fundamental discoveries that couldn't have been done by the market because they're just too out there, they're too long-term. They, they aren't going to pay in the next quarter or the next five years. They, they have a longer gestation period that's outside of the kind of VC world. Mm-hmm. And so um, what, we, what we haven't done is actually two things. We haven't actually acknowledged and um, promoted that aspect. And secondly, there is sort of a kind of an awareness right now that actually some of that wealth being generated by those discoveries should go back into the system to help fund new ones, that they're actually, that the government in some way should actually retain Mm -hmm. some of that value that's been created by its funding so that it can keep it going. So it's not like we're going to tax it, we fund it and give away for free for everybody forever. Yeah, we'll tax and fund and we'll give the information, but we're going to retain some value that's been created from this to help keep
1: this thing going. So the role of the United States government then might be more of a VC then, or maybe they need to create their own sovereign wealth fund or something along those lines.
2: Well, no, I don't. I think that's a little too extreme. It's more of like, um, I wouldn't call it a tax, but there is a sense in which you um, license or in some ways have some residual income of some percent coming back into you know, DARPA fund or whatever to keep it is. funding the research to help, yeah. help. so it's not so, so that it can grow in a certain sense. You can kind of expand right. that that pool and measure and track progress, right? Right. Yeah, but I think the amount of
1: value that has been created from these inventions is currently unquantifiable. People think it's too complex to calculate, but maybe that's something we need to do is start come you know calculating how much value was
2: created by GPS because it's got to be in the trillions, right? So there actually are there are some economists who are trying to do those calculations, and and for this very reason, to show that um, there there might be a benefit in having some of that go back to the fund. That's and and part of that would be for the very reason we're talking about is it would illuminate the value, and so therefore maybe even increase our willingness to to fund it because right now most people don't know that most people think that a lot of the government funding for science is kind of, you know, this wasted, pointless, or, wasted, yeah. crazy stuff. And a lot of it is. Sure. But that's actually but you what, have to the price. <laughs> right. That's actually the price that you pay. And and that's a good price because what we haven't counted for is actually the huge amount of value that that kind of basic research has generated.
1: So, Kevin, I would love to go back to earlier where I think you were talking about mind children. Yeah. So what is the future of child rearing like? Because in a sense, I see our mind children as uh, technologies that can help us become better parents and i think that ultimately becoming great parents uh is the only way we're going to make things better
2: um what are your thoughts on that so i i have two two responses one is is the basic child rearing the other one is about children in general so um i'm actually not a big believer in the role of technology in child rearing i i I think the uh, it's far more important for kids growing up, is to, to mold their character. And that's, a, that's just, a, right now at this point, a very human thing that's, that's about being an example. I mean, you actually teach far more by what you do than by what you say. right? And so- um, So direct, real-world a direct relationships real world, are yes. very important. And so I believe that you know, the, the skill that children, you know, young adults, graduates from high school should have there's really only one skill that should be aimed for in school which is learning how to learn because whatever whatever job that future child may have does not exist even when they're in high school and so they're going to have to learn it and not just once but many times during their career right and so um that ability to keep learning and and ultimately how to optimize their own style of learning. Cause we each learn differently in different ways in different arenas. And to know that, to be trained to actually have disciplined knowledge about how you learn best uh, different ways is the ultimate golden key. Superpower. Yeah. It's the superpower. I have found nowhere teaching no, nowhere is a single, single curriculum on how to learn, how to learn, particularly how to personally learn, how to learn your, your own way. And that is, um, that kind of character, that could be aided by technology. So sure. That that ability. But it you, doesn't currently exist in a format because right, you, you want to good. track and measure right. and practice,
1: practice. Which stifles creativity because the moment you know you're being tracked, recorded or observed, your behavior,
2: I think, is going to change somewhat. Right. Um, and so that could be hidden so you wouldn't even be aware of it. So you wouldn't be able, able to a, measure that. Yeah. the quantified self stuff. So that is a place that technology could help. But the other, the other way in which you're kind of Forming your character, how you deal with failure, um, you know, how you deal with criticism, um, how you select what you want to do, um, what governs you. Has to be modeled by parents I, I think or there's influencers. T- or- yeah, well, yeah, I mean, in, in some senses, you may be protecting a child from right. things like that. I mean, personally, my own personal story is, is that our kids grew up without TV. We didn't have TV in the house. But we were, I was one of the very first Netflix subscribers. And so, you know, this is before streaming, but so they were seeing a lot of maybe the same content, but it was under different circumstances. What they didn't see were the commercials. Right. My kids were pretty old before. First time they saw a commercial and they were completely bamboozled. It was like, what, what is this program? It's inside the program. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. We had to have a, you know, a teaching moment about what it is <laughs> and what the what, why it's there. So, so the the I mean, I can certainly see parenting being in some ways kind of um, trying to manage the the technology because I think and filter right, right. I think yeah. there is. I think there really is a difference in the technology for adults versus for kids and and how it works. And um, I think that's you know, right now we're paying attention to YouTube, kids YouTube. That's a very good thing to pay attention to. My only advice is let's look at the data rather than imaginary possibilities. Sure. I mean, we tend to, our minds rapidly go to a, what if kept in this direction, what would happen? Yes, that's that's a concern, but we should be making decisions on actually what we know, what the data suggests. Like recently, there was this um, kind of a fear about the YouTube algorithms um, directing people to a more extreme version. I saw that, yeah. Well, I did that. I just recently did that test myself. Is that true? It wasn't true at all. In fact, it was the opposite. It tended to to, to bring everything to the most bland, like TED Talks. <laughs> it was just like, got stuck on TED Talks forever, or <laughs> like um, sports and stuff. Yes. Yeah. And so, I mean, and I was just N1. So, so um, but the other examples from the paper were also just N1. So we need to have more data. We need to have, we're going to make these kinds of Decisions or we policies. don't yet have the data sets, though, which is let's, challenging, but it's going right. to be fun to create them, right? That exactly. should be well, fun. Let's fund those. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and again, you know, if you had a request to fund someone studying YouTube videos, it's often laughed at, but uh, that's OK. We, we need to do that.
1: Yeah. And I think that uh, technology companies, they're probably going to be the drivers of this research because, you know, you say that and the head of corporate investment at Google hears, OK, we need to acquire four recommendation engines. This is how we're going to go about that. So what's the role of technology companies in funding this research? They're already doing it directly and indirectly. Uh, Do you feel inspired by that? Or is that something we should be cautious
2: of? It's only natural that the companies were going to fund research in the hopes that they, you know, improve what they're doing. Hopefully they're also wise enough to fund research that's open-ended and they don't know what the answer is going to be. More importantly... And and Facebook was burned a little bit by this, but they should open up their data to independent researchers. And that was some of the Cambridge analytics came in that way where they actually did that, but the researchers weren't, they were compromised and they, so they really screwed over Facebook because Facebook was trying to do the right thing of saying, here's our data. You do, you know, research it. But they were, they, they weren't, they were, they were doing more than that. They were, they were, trying to manipulate people's um, opinions so I think um, all the above one is yes big corporations should fund this research as much as they can secondly they should um, allow independent science, you know university impartial um, researchers to use their data to come up with um, new things and then the government should probably do some kind of you know funding of, of independent um research as well. We, ha- we have the data, and, but you know, the curious thing is, is that the more concerned we are about the data, the more restrictions there are. It even makes it hard for researchers. Sure. And so it's like either we have to have exceptions for researchers, but again, the, Cam- the Cambridge Analytic thing was for research purposes, so it can be abused. I am pro-continuous um, ongoing research in all things. Including, like, say, drugs. So that we have this really weird system right now. It's weird. It wasn't in the beginning, but now it's a weird system with the FDA, where a drug will be invented and then it'll be tested through this very elaborate, long process that may cost half a billion dollars at this point. And then the drug is released, and it's like never tested again. As soon as it's released, it's going to, it's now can be used for all kinds of things that are off the label. Now and it's not being those, tested in the real world. Prior to right. that, it has and, not been tested not, in the and real none world. None of those are are, are really yeah. being captured and, and quantified. So what you what we want is basically constant constant vigilance, constant testing. So we should constantly be testing things. Mm-hmm. We shouldn't say, well, they were approved 20 years ago. So I'm for a data driven constant measurement. Mm-hmm of all kinds of
1: things. That's how we avoid blowups, right? Or black swan events, or that's how we maybe get a handle on those. Or what
2: do you, how do you view that? If you're always testing things, which is expensive. Sure. Somebody has to pay for it. Again, it may be part of the government. It may be part of the deal with uh, the inventors of the technology is, well, part of your responsibility. You have these rights. We'll give you a monopoly for seven years. Right. But part of that is you have to keep testing for those seven years. Right. And then maybe afterwards the data goes into a public right. trust
1: or what right. What are
2: some uh, scenarios yeah, and, there? And, and speaking of that, there's so many things we can still do to evolve the scientific method. All kinds of experiments happen and there was like, well, there's no correlation, so they don't publish. But no, no, no. that was That was very useful information to know. Sure. Those results should be published. Basically, all the data that we're collecting for every experiment should be Posted. Seems like the right thing ethically to do. Sure. And yeah. scientifically. Yeah. You've written a
1: lot recently about Mirror World. And there's a great essay in Wired that I would recommend. It's called AR Will Spark the Next Big Tech Platform. Call no, it Mirror not World. My title, by the way. Go ahead. What was the uh, title you were going with? Mirror World. Mirror World. <laughs> I like that. Um, but it does, you know, rank number one for when you yeah, search yeah. Mirror World right. now. So okay. at least there's that. I love the essay. When did you start writing it?
2: And I would be curious, uh, what is the genesis of your writing process for this? That's a good question. I had written a previous Wired cover story on VR, virtual reality. And it was centered around Magic Leap, which was kind of um, actually making an augmented reality glasses. And um, so I was kind of aware of of Magic Leap and had gone down and tested this stuff and tried it out. And a couple other AR glasses that were also um, not far behind Magic Leap. For me, it, I, I, I thought that, this augmented reality world where you have see-through glasses and you have this marriage melding of the real world and the virtual world together had more potency, had more power. And it seemed to me to be kind of more likely that would be where we would first encounter this. And so it kind of ended there. That was ended. But um Somewhere along the line, I, I I saw a reference in you know one of the tech meme tech blogs somewhere about this idea called the AR cloud, which was being talked about as the VC's looking at the AR cloud. I said, the AR cloud, what is that? And then the the, the vision was that you that was the mirror world basically, but they weren't calling it that. And it was sort of this. There was this sort of brief kind of talks about this idea, and so I started to research to see, well, what, how real was this? And the idea was that you took the AR vision and you hooked all the AR glasses together and you, have this, you had this emergent AR cloud, or what I would call eventually mirror world. So I started to try and find out through the VC kind of view where they were funding, what was happening. And... At some point, it seemed like there was enough going on that maybe this should have a name. And I encountered the guy who made up the world, a- 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 R- Cloud had a conference called Augmented World Expo in Santa Clara. So I emailed him and I got in and I went and attended all the um, sessions. And it was clear that there was something happening. But it was also clear that it, nobody had really painted a picture of it. So I pitched it to Wired and saying that um, I think there's something here. Nobody's described it. I think there is enough real that, that I'm not just kind of making up science fiction, that we can actually describe it. And so they gave me a couple months to, well, I spent actually the, the rest of the year kind of doing the interviews, researching it, talking to people. And then I think by the end of the year and Christmas, I think I I did the final. So that was like the, the conference was in like in the spring and then kind of. So it took me like a year to put it together. And a lot of it was just talking out loud, visiting the different people and trying out the idea to see whether there was anything there. So by
1: anything there, do you mean something like a new platform, a new industry? Uh, Was that
2: what got you excited about it? What was, uh, can you elaborate on that? For me, the the reason it was worth kind of putting it out was that I came to the conclusion that this was this, the mirror world, was the next platform, the big operating system platform that followed smartphones, which had followed the web. So that, that this was like the third iteration of a platform just as there was the web was this immense platform that enabled lots of things to happen. And then we had the smartphones and social media, which was another big platform. And that this was going to emerge to be the third stage, the next platform after smartphones, it would be smart glasses. And so, um, so that was sort of the, the hook. That was why it was worth taking that trouble. It wasn't just another kind of thing. There was actually a pretty big, influential consequential thing with many opportunities at many levels and so that made it for me worth talking about
1: so when you start to discuss these ideas do you gravitate towards uh, original content are you thinking about gaming are you thinking about education are there any core verticals that
2: are really inspiring your research that you're passionate about not especially i'm not a big gamer and by the you know and a lot of this will probably be driven by gamers there's um a quote in the mirror roll piece by um, the CEO of
0: Niantic, I yeah, think. CEO yeah. of the
2: Niantic, um, John Henke, who says basically that, you know, gamers are gamers in general. The, the gaming world is inventing all the new cool technology that can be then used in other sectors. And there is some, there may be some truth in that. And so, um, but I'm not a gamer myself, not, I'm not naturally a person who plays games, though. I try to, again, watch others i watch my son when he plays games i have a nephew who's a total 12 you know one of these you hear about the 12 year olds so, <laughs> you know you're anonymously some guy is on the head of the leaderboard and he's right. 12 years old well he's he's one of those guys he's not 12 anymore but he's probably 14 um so i i I'm always kind of watching him I, when you go visit him i wanted to see him play i wanted to ask him what he's doing why are his aspirations to join the
1: esports team i'm curious or is that the he could yeah but i don't know yeah, I don't
2: know. Uh, right now it's just for fun or he's kind of competitive. Yeah, kind of exactly. He's, yeah. He has his guilds and they just cream. <laughs> and that's it's fun for him, I yeah. guess. So, so I do pay attention to it, but I, I, not in exclusion of other things. I can pay attention to what's happening in health because that's another place where there's a huge amount of data and a lot of this stuff is happening. So I, try, I try not to, I try not to close my mind too much. I try to be a little bit agnostic about things in general, just because I feel I don't want to come to early premature conclusions, which can kind of blind oneself later on. Right. Because those premature conclusions
1: can form dogma or dogmatic right. thinking very quickly. So in an emerging industry like this, I would imagine the ultimate advantage would be to have beginner's mind. Would it be to be experimenting a lot how are you going about gathering your information to study mirror world and its
2: emergence? So in general, my, my take on, on trying to look at where technology is going is I try to look at where the early versions of it are being misused, not the official ideas, because generally what we, th- even the ventures, what they think the technology is going to be used for us, not how it actually is. And so I'm paying attention to how it's being misused by students by outlaws, <laughs> by criminals, by hackers, by people who are not using it officially. Right. That tells me a little bit more about what technology wants in the sense of it's kind of is showing its biases and so we can I can follow it better. So, so I do look at early adopters. I look at the science as much as possible and again, that's part of the hard part for me is I'm not a super technical person, but I really try to do read the papers and talk to the the experts are like truly really trying to understand what it is because there is, there's a lot of hype. There's a lot of hand-waving. There's a lot of, I mean, sort of like um, conventional wisdom, which not all of that is true or helpful and trying to understand exactly what's happening in a way that I can tell someone else is part of what I'm trying to do. And And, and I, you know, again, I can, Get a little bit sense of what the technology wants when I, when I actually look at the science. And by teaching, does that help you discover kind of where you're at knowledge wise in the space? Oh, yeah, or well, I write in order to understand what what I think. Mm-hmm. I have no idea what I think until I try to write it. So writing for me is a way of thinking. That that's that's it. So. I, you know, each time I sit down and think, okay, I know what this is. And I start to write it in two sentences and I realize I have no idea. <laughs> so I have to go back and do more interviews and then I do another sentence. Okay. I got it now. And then it's like, uh, wait a minute. But, uh, and then I'm stuck again. So, so writing is just forcing me to think clearly, to research, to be able to describe it because I keep thinking I know what this is. And then I, as soon as I have to try to write it, I realize I don't really
1: know. It sounds like you're when you approach a new space, in this case, mirror world and the future of VR and AR and mixed realities, you're kind of looking at it through the lens of, okay, there are these black hat applications. There are these white hat applications. Now I'm trying to imagine what are the gray hat applications? What are the uh, gray hat applications that are going to be so useful that they're going to proliferate all over the world? Is that how you kind of think about it or is that a useful mental
2: model for thinking about the space? It would be. I'm not sure I actually do that. I, I like that idea. Mostly what I'm trying to do is, and I've I've kind of, I didn't set out this way, but I would say looking back at what I'm doing for WIRED and what I'd naturally try to gravitate to is I'd like to try to make uh, frameworks. I wouldn't call them theories, but kind of like a framework. I I like to generalize things. It's like the question is a little bit kind of what you mean by the gray area. I like to say, well, this is what's happening here. This is what's happening here. What's the general case? Sure. That unites those things. If if you have, um, if, you know, if VR can do this and AR can do this, what's the what's the general attribute that they both share? So it's a kind of it's a it's a method of generalizing to try to make a framework to try to understand it. Because I I find it easier to understand things if there's a framework. So like, okay, if we understand that this is a new platform, that's that helps us understand what's going on. If we understand that it's, um, you know, that it's the emergence of two different realms together into one, that helps us understand, you know, what they're trying to do with the glasses. You know, if if this is a matter of, you know, that it's a one-to-one map of the entire world, that helps us understand, you know, the scale of things. And so those kind of metaphors or frames are what I'm always trying to extract out. So I'm saying, well, hey, this is this and this is this. what connects all that. What's the pattern that connects right. these things that we can generalize and say, well, that's true. So we can predict, therefore, that the next one over here will finish it because we have a framework. We have a theory. So it sounds like maybe the best way to start exploring
1: these spaces is to start to build our own pattern matching systems for mm. the industry. So are there any particular patterns or trends in uh, the mirror world that you're particularly excited about right now? Is it the work that Magic Leap's doing? Is it the work
2: that uh, Microsoft's doing with HoloLens? Just two days ago, a CEO sent me a link to the work that of a company that I have been kind of aware of, haven't been following very much, it's called Matterform. And they are doing the s- scanning, uh, the 3D world scanning at a large scale. And they, the little demo they did was the uh, Talison West, Frank Lloyd Wright's Western um, Institute they scan his property and, and the, um, all the buildings. And so you can do kind of like a walkthrough even without, but with the glasses and it's remarkably robust in terms of the capture, the volumetric capture of this campus, we Mm -hmm. call it inside the buildings, outside in, in kind of the seamless way you can kind of transverse going through and you get, you get a hint of what's coming. And better volumetric capture is key to creating right. uh, And volumetric capture, for the benefit, of the, is 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 a true three dimensional picture of something from any possible angle, including up, down, below. That actually gives you a sense of of that volume, that that space that it occupies. So, you know, people think of um, this kind of like a Google Street View, but the thing about Google Street View is it's a, not very volumetric. There's no sense that you go into those buildings and as you're passing through the door that the walls actually have thickness. That's true volumetric capture where everything has a, a volume. It's not just flat like a like a theater flat. And so- um, To the point where your mind agrees with it, right? Right. And, and or more importantly, to the mind, to the point where you are convinced and feeling like you're You get you're that there. feeling, right. And this goes to me, the kind of aha moment that I had at Stanford Labs, when um, Jeremy Belliston, who runs their VR lab, was doing the demo, and, and that was that this stuff, even the smart glasses, when they're doing the true augmented reality, is that it, um, it works on a different part of your brain than the part of your brain that sees things and watches things. It works on a part of your brain that is tricking you into believing that something's present, that you're present. Things are present, and just like we have another part of our brain that on a screen where we see things move, we believe things are moving. So, we watch a film of a rocket taking off. We say, "Well, that rocket went across the you know went across the screen." No, the rock. There was no movement at all. Those are just still pictures, one after another, mm-hmm. and that sense of movement that we would swear was there was just an illusion. It's just a trick. That is one part of our brain. But the other part of the brain where we're tricked into believing that this is really here or that you are really here as an avatar, you feel that that you're really there, even though we know you couldn't possibly be there. Sure. That sense of experiencing things is very powerful. That's the new superpower that these AR and VR give is a sense of presence tricking you to believe that you're experiencing something even when you're not. And that is that kind of this you know, Internet of Experiences that we're making with this uh, mirror world. And this is going to be the key to authentic telepresence,
1: right? Or the yeah. promise of telepresence has been, uh, you know, you've been studying technology for a while. I'm curious, when did the uh, theories about telepresence first start coming onto the scene?
2: And well, are they going to be, is the dream going to be realized or no? I mean, it was a science fiction fantasy for, for a very long time. And I, you know, I saw VR, virtual reality in the 80s, and I thought, you know, it was going to be very, it was going to be the next five years. It just seemed, because the the VR, the best VR in the 80s was actually about the same, as good as the Oculus, the first version of the wow. Oculus. Yeah. And so it was like, oh, this is around the corner. Well, the problem is, it was just the price. The problem is, is those setups back in the 80s cost a million dollars. So what you got with the Oculus wasn't really any better. It just said it was like a thousand dollars instead of a million dollars, but that's actually still not good enough. We need to have like hundred dollars. Mm-hmm. That's so 10 times better. <laughs> yeah. So when we get to 10 to hundred dollars or maybe even $10, then that's when we're going to see. um, And it doesn't even be any better than what the Oculus was, but if it was a hundred dollars,
1: it'll be pretty good. And just if it was on a recurring subscription right there, like the economics start to make sense for a large platform uh, where it becomes
2: feasible or what are your thoughts there? I mean, I think, so the economic models of the mirror world are, I think there'll be varied in many, maybe there will be some hardware manufacturers that will make money like selling iPhones, maybe an Apple like company that makes really cool, powerful, well-designed glasses that everybody wants. Okay. So, so there's, there's a chance, but there aren't going to be many of those. It's going to be like one or two that can actually do that. And they might quickly become commoditized as well. But like, you know, most of the money, you know, I don't know. That's a good question. Who makes most of the money on telecom? Is it Apple or, or the telecoms in general? I don't know, but you know, you basically, for most people, you kind of get a free phone for promising to pay your money to the phone company. There'll be subscriptions just to the service. That's another model. And then there'll be tons of apps and things where they're trying to to sell for additional services. Tools and upgrades. Tools and and upgrades. There'll be some people charging for, um, you know, ability to add layers of information, worlds, games. I mean, certainly there's going to be tons of games played in the real world like a Pokemon Go sort sure. kind of a
1: thing, people will pay for that. I see MMORPGs really driving a lot of the uh, first applications that are going to reach scale in the mirror world. MMORPGs that lead a user to a better personal
2: outcome in their, their real world life, uh, I th- perhaps. I think, I think multiple player games and reality-based games are going to be really big and they will drive. I'm not sure that that is, will be the main driver. I, my prediction is that most people will encounter this technology first at work. Yes, agreed. Mm-hmm. And then they will migrate into everyday life. But they'll do it either with the 80% of the people who don't work at desks in the world, wearing these glasses, kind of brings them in, gives them powers to repair, train, guide, schedule, etc. Then there is all the desk-bound people who can have their virtual screens in their virtual office and then, if there's any kind of a promise of telepresence, sure, that's huge. And so, I mean, telepresence, virtual telepresence, is is a service technology that I would pay an immense amount of money personally. I would pay like I don't know, hundreds of dollars a month, many thousands of dollars a year if I could Eat have my a, AR representation yeah, here and have an yeah. avatar sit there and have a conversation. Yeah, it would just be so powerful. And then you add into this, the other powerful technology, I think coming that will really disrupt the world's economy, which is real-time translation. So there are people around the world who are highly skilled in all kinds of things, but lack the one skill of being able to be fluent in English. If you had real-time translation, the kind of dabble fish where you are translating in real time, that just opens up and unleashes so much to people who, again, have great talent, but not the talent of speaking English. And they can participate in this global economy in a way that they could not before, and so that's also part of this mirror world technology, in my view, which is you know, it's you, you, not just visual; it's also audio, talking to your assistant, your digital AI, with your back and forth in voice. So yes, so there is a there is a a huge, to me, a huge economic component in just um, the the change in the way we employ people, how we do work these artificial virtual screens and rooms. And I think for a lot of people, that's where they're first going to encounter
1: this. What are your thoughts on the idea of a more perfect logos? So in philosophy and religious history, uh, I think philo Judaeus had this concept that we weren't going to communicate as humans as good as we could, or we wouldn't get to a place where we'd uh, create heaven on earth until we could visualize the logos a bit more so we could see what each other... Uh, what we meant instead of what we were saying, because often words are very imperfect, yeah. right? They're an imperfect uh, medium of communication, yeah. and what I mean when I say something is different than your, you know, internal right, dictionary right. might imagine. So, is there a future of communication here that might be really exciting for you know to connect humans
2: in a positive sure. way? What you're <laughs> talking about sounds a little bit like what Jaron Lanier, one of the pioneers, of, oh, 10 um, arguments for deleting your social no, media accounts no. or, before this. Okay, Jeremy is one of the pioneers to develop virtual reality. He coined the term virtual reality, or at least popularized it. And um, at the time that I was talking about in the eighties, his VPL had the state of the art VR rig, and he was making the gloves and the whole system. That was the one that was probably as good as Oculus is now. So for many years, he, he was trying to write his very first book and uh, we were doing it by, we were, I was taping conversations with him and it, the book was something about what he called post-symbolic language. Okay. And he was sort of, I think, talking about what you're talking about. What his idea is that if you had this system, a VR system that was good enough, you could conjure up a representation of a banana faster than you could say banana or even type it banana. Right. Especially That's, with mind-brain interfaces right. So or that you like would that. show. Yes. yes exactly show what, you what you were saying. <laughs> right. And the person could like ask questions and thoughts. And, and so and the other person thing. is kind of reading what you're saying in a, in a, he called it post-symbolic. And I never quite understood exactly what he was talking about because a banana that's there is a symbol <laughs> kind of, but he says, no, it really is the banana. So anyway, if you want more of that, I, I never fully grasped what it was. So I don't know the answer, I'll, I'll, but you should ask Jaron because that. that's fascinating. Man. he'll give you a couple of days worth of uh <laughs> of expansion on that. Sure,
1: very cool. So, when you're presenting Mirror World to someone for the first time who is very excited right, about right, it right. or you feel like the moment is right to kind of like turn them on right, to Mirror right, World, right. how do you do that? What's the biggest benefit of Mirror World for the average person? That's a really fair
2: question. I don't have an easy way to do it. Um because I think we're at this point where even the inventors of this technology don't know what it's really going to be used for. Sure. And some of them might know that and be quite aware that. Well, it's yeah, right. And so I'm not using this every day at this point, so it's really hard to imagine what it will be. But but there are there are a number of different what I would think are kind of immediate uses. And again, going back to the um, the way I think it's going to come into the world. So I think the first uses are going to be in places like um, occupations where they need to do repair or training. the The repair is is where um, Complicated machinery has to be repaired. Um, it's very, very complicated technically. It's it's a it's a it's a real stretch for people to kind of know if they have more than one machines is knowing how they work. And so the way this works is that you have this thing that you see. You see the real machine, and you have this overlay, virtual overlay of what is what and where things may be broken and what wire to move over here. The decision trees visualized for you in a sense, right? right? Right. Well, there could be someone. The expert could be looking over your shoulder and says, okay, kind of reach pointing. over there, this nut here, turn it this way, and then over here's, and then they point up to it. So they see this overlay of the real thing and the virtual understanding of it, and they get to work in, and this actually not theory. This, this absolutely works and is being used today. That kind of training and education could also be used about learning how to weld. So I did try something where, where um, I learned how to weld by watching YouTube, well, this was a better version of YouTube because um, this was a, a real demo where there was a machine and it can see my hand. It can see, and I can shadow puppet the the right position, and it's giving me direct, immediate feedback. It's like having a real master look over my shoulder and with his or her hand moving it. To the right place and saying no 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 you can move up a little bit here I can just tell and so apprenticeships it's, right it's, it's yeah. very very powerful it's very very powerful so for me one of the visions of this is a kind of like a better YouTube uh, YouTube in the sense of the tutorial universe of of instructional how to's and how to do things and stuff is teaching it's 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 really made for it's a teaching medium a learning medium like none other so that's one area then this, the, the you know there unfortunately is a whole shopping scenario that, that I think will happen, but I'm, I mean, that's so, so obvious and inevitable that, you know, it's not really not talking about, but it does work where you have your glasses and you can imagine and visualize a, a chair, a different chair here, and you can walk around it and you can really feel what that chair would look like the right scale you can just snap your fingers and get different fabrics on it. You can move it around virtually where you want it. And that, again, you are experiencing it. It works on you in a very different way. And it's very close to what the actual chair would look like. So that kind of an experience in trying things on and shopping will be one of the first things that will come along. And then, then there's this kind of the informational overlay of like, I, here's something else I would pay for. I hope it happens is that I want to have um, your name over your head. If I've met you before. Yeah. Just remind me. We're walking you, around right. we're yeah. coming up. Uh, you know, so cause I, I, I'm always forgetting people's names. Sure. Same. I, the day after, it's embarrassing. Yeah, I've been in workshops where the next morning I come in. And it's nice to meet you. It's like we we worked uh, together yesterday I've, afternoon. Yeah, <laughs> like, I've oh completely
1: <laughs> I've completely whiffed on people's names and call them. I'm right, yeah, right. I'm very confidently call so, them the so wrong I, thing. So I want it's I great. want that little
2: I want that little hovering over about <laughs> sure. Chad. You right? Yes. Yeah. yeah exactly. It's, so so it's like that would be
1: immensely valuable to me. Yeah, and seeing you know like recent quotes or context and well, that would be fun or something. Exactly. Yeah.
2: So um, that kind of stuff. There's privacy issues,
1: which we haven't talked about about this, but I hope that... In the settings, though, you know, I can opt in to what type of information I want to display. Well, that's that's part of the conversation. Definitely. Um, So how do we get to a future for sci-fi and original content and the games in the mirror world where they're positive? How do we avoid a a future of dystopia? Because it seems like Hollywood wants more dystopias uh, and that the people who buy from Hollywood seem to want more dystopias, too. How do we get to a brighter future for stories? The beautiful thing is,
2: is that, yes, there are only a couple hundred Hollywood movies made every year. I call them the, you know, apex charismatic species. You know, their lions are kind of rare and um, charismatic, but there is this huge biomass ecosystem below. Long right? Well, this pyramid that supports them. So lions require, you know, I don't know, hundreds of of uh, antelope gazelles below them the gazelles feed on you know acres and acres and acres of millions of blades of grass and the grass depends on like you know billions of of uh, microbes and so um i think there's a similar kind of pyramid in in video so at the apex you have the 500 hollywood movies but there's you know there's tons of video shorts on youtube and below that there's you know gazillions of things that people make on um, their phones. And so I think the way to, to change the what Hollywood does is to change what's below, what it's feeding on, what it depends on. So there's no gatekeeper in terms of anybody making a video or writing a science fiction story. There's fanfic sites. There's huge. And so for me, the way to start it is just to ourselves produce individually, better memes, better work stories. on a work on a future that we want to live in. Right. And, but the thing is, is that that future, can I say, well, it's going to, we're not going to have AI, we're not going to have robots, and we're not going to have gene editing. No, those are all inevitable. We have to make a future that we want a picture where there is ubiquitous AI, there is ubiquitous gene therapy, there is ubiquitous uh, data collection. What does that world look like? And so, what's a vision look like? Rather than waiting for the professionals to do it, I think we should try to say, "Well, what is the world that we want? What would what what would that look like? What would I be
1: happy with when it comes to that world? Are there any glimpses that you can provide of what uh, the future golden age looks like, or a future for technology that you're excited that your kids get to live in and Uh participate in? What's that future world look like for you?
2: For me, the most fundamental technological change coming that will touch every aspect of our lives is artificial intelligence. Um, There is nothing that I can think of from fashion, sports, religion, military education, that's not going to be impacted by this. But my vision of this is that these AIs in plural are all smart, but none of them think like humans. They're all, it's kind of like a zoo. There's a zoo of many different species of minds. Some of them being quite primitive, like animals, some of them being aliens. So they can be very smart in some ways, but they're aliens. And I think we're going to have, we're going to be frustrated a lot of the time because these AIs will be really super smart in one area and completely dumb in another. Which might be like a first contact type experience for us. Yes, it's like, it's like, we're just like, you dumb smarting thing. It's like, (laughs) you're so intelligent, but you... You can, you, know, you can unlock the safe, but you can't find the safe in the room. And so um, the view that I have is that we're going to be working with all these varieties of AIs in various um, capacities, sometimes very frustratingly. Sometimes they're going to suggest things that, that they're going to think differently. And so thinking different is the engine of creation and innovation and wealth. And if we're all connected together 24 hours a day with our devices, it's very hard to have a different idea. But having AIs think differently is actually going to help us come up with different ideas. So so the world I'm looking at is us working with and partnering with other kinds of thinking. And then, you know, various robots and stuff that have various levels of intelligence, some of them very restricted and narrow to do one thing. And a lot of our time may be spent kind of managing just like we spend time managing different technologies we may be managing different um ais different ai versions of ourselves maybe or yeah, or are going to be so, so unlike that... us they they're very very unlike us they will be we will engineer ais to be creative but their creativity will be different it's like it's like we'll engineer them to be funny but they're not going to have our sense of humor right it's like they just might augment it's our like potential a, for it's, it's, it's humor. Like, it's like you know it's like a spock right sure. it's like you know they're kind of like They're smart, but they're just not with us. And I think for a very, very, very long time, as far as I can imagine, we're going to always prefer to have small talk and hang out with other humans. Sure. Because there's an ease, a fundamental, relaxing resonance that we're going to have. Even as smart or funny or creative as an AI, they're going to be alien. They're going to be really like they're just like they that's could supplement only, the only, only, right? only AI would think that was really funny. Yeah. Right. Okay, you made a joke. I, you know, I get the joke, <laughs> but it's not really funny for humans. Yeah. Okay. And so um, I think that's the world where we're going to have lots of help, assistance, things whispering into our ear. If we want the answer to a question, we ask a machine. But if we want a good question, we hire a human. All right? And so humans are going to be really good at asking questions. And that kind of, um, of, a, of a sense where we're working with, so, so the world I imagine is where there's the ubiquitous zoo of a, ty- kinds of AI doing different things. Some of us will become better at talking to them than others. We'll have to navigate, just as we have kind of a landscape of how we find answers in the internet, we'll have to figure out how we navigate through all these different AIs. And that'll be skill for some people as well, who may have a kind of intuitive sense of how these things all the different kinds of AIs work. But I think it's it's a zoo. It's not a single big AI. It's kind of all these little things. It's going to be very frustrating for a lot of people. And I'm the first to say that there will be whole new problems, big problems, major problems, that, that are going to be created by these. They are going to be making decisions about who gets the mortgage and who doesn't. It will be very hard for us to understand what their logic is. It's going to require another we have to make a second AI that actually watches that AI to tell us how it works. And so we're going to have these complexes of things and, they're, and we'll be in a constant conversation with them about their decisions and why they decided certain things and who do we appeal to for that. So, so there, you know, more of our time and, and cognition will be spent talking about these, just as we gossip about our friends. Right. We'll be programming the morality in a sense, or yes. it's very important that we develop that meta skill fast. To- so, so, you know, programming now is a good term because actually it turns out that it's not difficult to put in values or morality or ethics into an AI. That's not difficult. It's just code. Right. Like, or in a sense, it's modeling like the ourselves. It's like, like loading code and laws and things or just code. We can do that. The difficult part Is that we as humans don't really a know what our values are, and secondly, have our our values are very inconsistent and very very shallow. Right. Once we start to examine them and try to put them into some kind of structure and look at what philosophers and others have been doing for a long time, that's what they've been trying to do. Is we realize we're inconsistent, we're shallow, we're just horrible, and so the real problem or the challenge ahead of us is actually becoming better coming up with better ethics and morality that we can then give to the robots. So in the kind of the long-term way is that I think this process is going to make us better humans. I agree. I think it's
1: going to give us a mirror that we can stand to look in. That's helpful. Right. That's the hope. So Kevin, thank you so much for joining us and being generous with your time. Uh, I recommend all of your books. This has <laughs> been fascinating. We'll have to get you back on for round two at some point. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks you for the great questions. You're obviously a great human.